Before we get started on this week's edition of the Deconstruction Workers podcast, I wanted to let you know about a fundraiser that is going on. This is Dr. Christopher Bell, and my sister has recently been diagnosed with cancer. Anyone who has ever gone through the cancer fight knows how awful and devastating it can be to a family, and our family is no exception. We have set up a GoFundMe fundraiser to help my sister raise the funds necessary to fight her cancer battle, and I would really appreciate it if you took a little bit of time and maybe donated a little bit of money. Five bucks, ten bucks, fifty bucks, whatever you got. However much you feel as though you can afford to give, we would love to have it. So you can go to tinyurl.com slash dcwhelp. That's tinyurl.com slash dcwhelp and donate what you can. Thanks. And now on to the show. University professors spend a lot of time talking to each other about popular culture in academic journals and at academic conferences. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals and I want to talk to you. Some of the most brilliant thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard and I'm on a mission to change that. Brilliant people, fascinating conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell and this is a hard hat area You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is Dr. Christopher Bell. You are on the Deconstruction Workers. And today I am doing something special. I promised you in episode one of this season that this season I was going to try to bring on some new Deconstruction Workers to try to expand the knowledge base because it's part of the mission of this show to give scholars from around the country an opportunity to present their research and to have discussions about it. So today is our first in a hopefully long line of new players, of new friends to join us. And so today on the line, I am talking with Jen Zuko. Welcome to the show, Jen. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) You are (laughs) quite welcome. Jen is currently serving as adjunct faculty at multiple universities in the greater Denver area. But one of the reasons I really wanted to bring her on was her background in stage combat, in fight choreography, and fight direction, in stunt coordination. Basically, you do a lot of physical stuff. Yeah, I do. (laughs) Out in the world, which is cool. Yeah, and actually lately I've been starting in the sort of newish field of intimacy coordination too, which is, it's funny, a lot of us stage combat guys are starting to be asked to do intimacy coordination as well, which is sort of an aligned art form. It's been fascinating. Yeah, I'm sure. Again, one of the things that I wanted to be able to do this season is to show you as an audience member, sometimes how our academic pursuits of particular kinds of popular culture also have real world applications in terms of the way that culture gets produced. It's not just us sitting around talking in a room, but these are the things that actually happen out in the field as popular culture is being developed. Which is why today I think is really going to be interesting, both for you, the listener, and for us, the two academics sitting here, because we both study the same thing in two very different ways. 
If you're a longtime listener of the show, you understand that my major research area is sort of the intersection between gender studies and popular culture. And those of you who have been paying attention know that what I study is not what you would think I would study. What I study is femininity studies. I study depictions of women and girls, mostly girls, in popular culture and how we talk about what it means to be a girl to both boys and girls in our culture. That's why I'm very excited to talk to you about these seven tropes in particular. (laughs) So Jen's research has developed into a pretty useful tool that I thought we could kick around today. And that is that she has sort of codified, taxonomied, brought into groups seven ways that female portrayals can be problematic. In particular, the seven tropes that I coined They have to do mainly, or actually specifically and only, with a badass or strong female character. Because a lot of the other sort of misogynist tropes are being talked about by many other scholars, yourself included. Things like Damsel in Distress and The Mary Sue, which you had a whole episode on, which I was happy to hear. Or Manic Pixie Dream Girl or any of those other ones that we see in mainstream culture that people are talking about already. But these seven actually have to do with the badass female character, which means that the problems within them are a little more insidious and a little bit harder to pin down, at least for a casual consumer. A lot of times you'll hear me on this show talk about toxic femininity, but toxic femininity is not the same thing as what Jen is talking about here, because for me and for the way that I present toxic femininity in my own research, it's really about characters who are doing things that are clearly toxic for women and for the way we think about and treat women within society. What Jen is talking about are things that actually are framed oftentimes as positive attributes within popular culture that turn out to also be very damaging. It's like a bait and switch that happens with these kinds of characters. When you see toxic femininity, you know it. Right. You know when someone is using sex as a weapon. You know when someone is using their femininity to get what they want, using their body to get what they want, circumventing rules and stuff. You know what toxic femininity is when you see it. These sort of other tropes that Jen's talking about, you may, number one, not recognize as toxic in nature, and number two, oftentimes think, well, isn't that a positive portrayal of this female character? Yeah, or you're distracted by the positive attributes of them, like, oh, she's so strong, oh, she's so intelligent, oh, she's so badass, and that distraction of that aspect of her obscures the problems that are sort of underlying. It's more of an insidious kind of underlying problem. And actually, I started this project Because one character in particular has always bothered me, and I wasn't sure exactly why. I was like, why is this bothering you so much? I don't get it. So that's how I started with the first trope, which is what I call the Marion effect. It's based on two different characters named Marion. And it was just something that has always bothered me, and I I didn't really get it. I'm like, what? They're supposed to be really strong. So I don't know if we want to start talking about the first trope now. This is how the whole thing started, was with that first one. I was like, why why is this bothering me? Oh, and then once I wrote about it, I saw exactly what was going on. Let's put the list out, and then we'll talk about each one. Okay. The list that we're going to be dealing with today is The Marion Effect, The Wonder Woman, Down the Rabbit Hole, The Meaning of His Life, Mother Knows Best, One of the Guys, And I'm only here for my vagina. So there are seven tropes that we're going to be dealing with, all of them in their own way problems. Right. 
So let's talk about the Marion effect. What is the Marion effect and where does it come from? It's named after two characters in particular named Marion, though they don't have to be named Marion, obviously, but two older popular movies that I happened to love. I mean, back in the day, I loved it. And one of them was obvious and one of them's a little bit less obvious. So the first Marion is Made Marion from the horrifically wonderful or wonderfully horrific, however you want to put it, Kevin Costner Robin Hood, where the first time we meet Maid Marian, she is in this amazing, completely anachronistic ninja-like cat suit. She kicks Robin Hood's butt. She fights really well. She's super, super badass. But then by the time the end of the movie comes around, she has completely lost her ability to fight. She gets dragged up stairs of a tower and gets trapped there, you know, dragged by one wrist by a scrawny sheriff of Nottingham. Looks like he's half her size. And yes, she's wearing a skirt at that point, but, and this came out in 1991 and I was still, you know, sort of developing myself as a woman. And I'm like, why, why does she suddenly lose all of her fighting skills? Like she kicked Robin Hood's butt. How come she can't do anything against these other guys? Where did it all go? Was it a magic suit of armor that she put on and all the fighting ability was in the suit suddenly she can do nothing but squeak the hero's name and what what's going on there so that was the one marion and the other marion is a little bit less obvious but the exact same flip of this character happens to her and that's marion ravenwood from raiders of the lost ark so in the very beginning she also is very strong she engages in a fight in her own way when we first see her she's super strong she owns her own tavern and when the big fight scene against the nazis happens she she has indy's back and she's not a fighter herself but she was definitely an asset in that big fight scene and it was really her cool head and sharp eye and sharp shooting that saves the day so at the end of that fight she says i'm your partner and she holds up the amulet but then right after that she really totally isn't and she flips and becomes basically just another MacGuffin for Indy to have to rescue. And so I was like, well, what happened? I mean, to give Marion Ravenwood a little bit more credit, she's a little bit better written in that she does try to use her heavy drinking skills halfway through. She does try, you know, she does try to actually use her strengths to get away herself, but she fails because her function has changed as a character. And that's what made me realize that, that these two characters, they're introduced to us as badass so that we like them, so that we go, oh, this girl's awesome. No wonder our hero completely loves her. She's great. But then once the male hero enters the scene, the purpose of that character changes. She's no longer independent. She now becomes a damsel in distress. So it's this flip between a badass into the damsel in distress for purposes of that story. There are three... Marians that immediately came to mind for me. Oh, yeah. Two of them pretty easily accessible. One of them only accessible if, like me, one of your very favorite movies is a movie nobody else has seen. Oh, so, <laughs> oh. try me, try me. Right. <laughs> the first one that came to mind is obviously Princess Leia. Oh, in, sure. Mm-hmm. In A New Hope. Uh, my own daughter, who was nine years old at the time, was the first one who brought this one up to me in a way that even I hadn't really considered, which is Princess Leia is really important to the first two thirds of A New Hope and literally then disappears for 15 minutes and then comes back at the end to give the boys all medals. 
<laughs> That's right. Yeah. She exactly. has proven her worth in combat and yet is completely sidelined for the entire third reel. Well, and even when we first meet her, she's a badass in a completely different way. She's a senator. She stands up to Darth Vader. She comes up to his shoulder only, and she just looks right up into his face and is just like, oh, you, whatever. She's super badass. Yeah, that's true. But then she also becomes a damsel in distress, though, as well. Wait, except for Chewie. How come Chewie doesn't get a medal? Never mind. That's a whole other Well, yes, that's a, that's a different story. <laughs> okay. Chewie doesn't get a medal because he's brown. We could. That's a whole different yeah, show. No, that's true. Yeah, we can talk about that. Problematic, <laughs> um, racist, you know, yeah. racist tropes. Okay. The second one is Lilu. In the yeah. fifth element. Well, Lilu is, I have her under a different one of these tropes. Oh, interesting. Okay, well then maybe we'll put a pin in Lilu. I have her as one of the examples from Down the Rabbit Hole in this aspect of the Down the Rabbit Hole, which is the Born Sexy Yesterday. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I suppose, she's, I suppose she's that as well. I just, she has all of this fight knowledge. She downloads, she clearly knows how to fight because she takes on that entire room of aliens, completely destroys them. So we know she's really important, but then she becomes Corbin Dallas's MacGuffin through the entire last reel of that film as well. I would argue that she is his MacGuffin from the beginning. I think that's probably a fair categorization. Yeah. Let's go back to her when we talk about that. Yeah, let's put a pin in her. The other one who just came to mind as we were talking about Lilo is Trinity in The Matrix. Sure. Yep. Totally. Who also is complete badass, but just not as badass as Keanu Reeves. Well, yeah, she can't be as bad as the male hero. Come on. Of, of course not. <laughs> but she's completely integral to the plot until she's not. Right. She actually drives the plot and she is independent and an awesome fighter and all that kind of stuff until Neo enters her world. Once he enters her world, then she is downgraded to the one who makes fluttery googly eyes at him. And that's pretty much it. The last one is the one that most people probably won't be able to access in their brain space immediately. It's Laureline from Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Oh, okay. No, you're right. I have not seen that one. <laughs> like I said, I, it, it's very insular, but it's a Luc Besson film. So it's made by the same person who made The Fifth Element. Laureline spends the entire first half of the film proving she is exponentially better than Valerian in every single way. And then is relegated to the... A person on the headphones that tells Valerian what to do <laughs> rather than being the one who actually does stuff. She's the one with all the knowledge, all the skills, all the everything, but Valerian is her puppet out in the field who gets all the glory because he's the one actually doing stuff. Right, when right. she's the one with who's instructing him and telling him how to do everything. It's so frustrating. When there's no reason why she shouldn't be doing it except that she's female. She does not need Valerian in literally any way. That movie could have just been called Laureline and let her do all the stuff, but it's not. It's called Valerian, so Valerian gets to do all the things. Interestingly right. enough, the graphic novel it's adapted from is called Valerian and Laureline. Oh, oh, okay. She's in the title of the graphic novel. And is she more of a pivotal co-protagonist sort of yes, in the graphic she, novel? Yes, she is, she is an equal partner in their partnership they they are partners ah, in okay. that in the text in this text they're partners but they're really not valerian's in charge and she is his sidekick right, which is right. frustrating yeah <laughs> yeah and it's the kind of thing where if you're not really paying attention you might not even notice why is this bothering me? it was especially the, the marion ravenwood part i was like because you know the marion from robin hood that's pretty obvious okay she's in right. a white dress Instead of her awesome non-gendered battle suit. So, okay, it's all pretty obvious. But 
Marion Ravenwood, it's the same, but it's just a lot better written movie. It's just a better movie, so it's harder to sort of pinpoint. But you still look at Marion Ravenwood in, in the beginning. She's wearing agendered clothing, darker earth tones, her hair's up, she's not wearing any makeup, she's independent, and then she slowly morphs into literally wearing a white wedding dress, basically. Right. And why is she wearing that? Because she's forced into it by the males in the story. Same thing with Mirian. I wonder if we could throw Toriel in there as well. In the oh, Hobbit. man. It's been so difficult for me to sit through those movies. Uh, it's just... I will be the blasphemer who says, I actually think The Hobbit is a better trilogy of films than Lord of the Rings. Oh, really? Oh. I, I think it's exponentially Ooh. better, actually. Them, them's fighting words? I don't, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> right? I'm a huge fan of the books, so I don't right. know. <laughs> I'm a huge fan of the books, of the Lord of the Rings series as well. I think it's better written than The Hobbit. I think The Hobbit's actually problematically written in lots of ways. Yeah. Beginning yeah. with the fact that there's not a single female character in the entire book. No, and I can totally see why they came up with Toriel because of that. Me too. Specifically, yeah. But then they come up with Toriel, and then they marry in her. They marry in her, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, yeah, I think it's it, this trope is pervasive. Yes, totally. So let's leave that one, and let's move to The Wonder Woman. Number two. The Wonder Woman has a dual aspect to it. There's sort of two sides of the same coin. And the second side of the coin has a lot to do. It's sort of aligned with number six, which is one of the guys. So I won't maybe... Won't talk about that side of it as much until we get to that one. But basically what the Wonder Woman is, is if we have a woman warrior character, then sexiness has a lot to do with this character. Whereas the sexiness of the character has nothing to do with a male warrior. Whether or not the male warrior happens to be sexy, it's not the first thing. It's not a big deal. So I just use the 2017 Wonder Woman as an example because there was this great comedic sketch and i write about this in my article where they're in this dingy room and it's this very small grubby looking support group and that they it turns out they're they're like we're the most hated people of all society we're the women who didn't love the movie wonder woman and they're like all hiding from society and they're all talking about all the social pressure on them to they're supposed to love it they're able to bring up the problems with it just within this one little safe space Things like, how come an island full of only hot women, how is that progressive? And she's wearing high heels as part of her battle outfit. Why is that okay? And she's, and in my version of that too, it's okay. So you might argue that she has a look that's similar to the comic book version of Wonder Woman, sure. But we have Gal Gadot, who is tall, thin, white, beautiful, young looking, and why does she have to wear high heels as part of her battle dress? Now, the outfit was designed by a female costume designer based on old ancient Greek armor that would be worn by men. So there's that. But then there's the other controversy about how those outfits then changed when the Justice League happened. Did you hear about that? Oh, yeah. Because Zack Snyder was in charge. Yeah, when suddenly the designer changed and suddenly all these midriffs were everywhere and there was cleavage and like all this stuff. Once Zack Snyder made Sucker Punch, he should never have been allowed to put another female character on screen. Oh ever. man, yeah, Sucker Punch. That's that's a whole nother that's like a that's like a trope in itself. No, I, I guess that's down the rabbit hole. It's it's, its own trope. <laughs> This is the one of year seven that I connected the most to because it's the one I have 
both written the most about and also the one I talk the most about. Oh, nice. Okay. I would love to hear your take. From my own conception, here's how it works. In popular culture, pretty much forever, men and women, and here I'm talking about, I'm not going to get into the whole range of gender. I know gender is a spectrum, blah, blah, blah. In popular culture, no, it's not. There are men and there are women. Right, right. So in popular culture, men and women both have what we call a locus of power. For men, the locus of power is physicality. Okay. That is, it is violence. Yes. For women, the locus of power is sexuality. Right. It is sex. In order for one character to access the locus of power of the other gender, they have to give up their own locus of power. So there's two ways that this can happen. Let's do for men since we're talking about women. Okay. For men to move into the locus of power of women, that is for men to move into the power of sexuality, they have to give up their locus of power of physical power, which is why very attractive men in popular culture are often feminized in lots of ways. They are made effeminate. What about James Bond? James Bond does not give up his locus of power because James Bond's sex is not about sexiness. James Bond's sex is about physical power. power. Oh, you're absolutely right. Okay. Thank you. So he doesn't have to give it up. Right. Good. But if you want to be sensitive, if you want to be uh, someone who has intimacy rather than sex, if you want to be someone whose power comes from relational ability, Uh you have to give up manhood. You have to give up the kind of manhood that we think of as men. You have to give up toxicity. It's why the joke about Thor in Avengers Endgame works so much. Oh, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Because he has given up his sexiness to get in touch with his... He's given up masculinity to get in touch with his feelings. Okay. To go in the other direction, if you are a woman and you want to have physical violence power, you better look like Gal Gadot because you have to give up your control over your sexuality. It's not that you're sexy. It's that you're sexy in the way men want you to be sexy. It's a male gaze thing. Exactly. You've surrendered it. Right. Gamora gets to be the best fighter in the galaxy because she looks like Zoe Saldana. Right, right. The other direction, though, which is the other thing you talk about, is if you don't give that up, then you have to give up sexuality completely. You're either completely available for men and men's version of sexuality, or you are unattractive in every way, and we don't see you as a woman at all. Right, which is where I come up with the Brienne of Tarth thing. Brienne of Tarth in Game of Thrones. Well, she's masculinized, which in this culture means that she's not sexy anymore. There's a whole nother thing about, like you're saying, about range of gender and why that's a problem, too. That is a symbol of desexualizing her, is to masculinize her. Exactly. Or we cover her up in some way. Or we cover her up, yeah. Eowyn in Lord of the Rings. The way she disguises herself as a man and puts on all of this armor and stuff. So she's no longer a woman. So then she has access to physical violence. Right. And that side of that coin has a lot to do with the trope number six, too. So we can talk more about that when we get there. These are all interlinking rings. Yes, they are. (laughs) It's not like they, they live on their own, right? Right, right. So yeah, I mean, this effect, which I have often referred to, interestingly enough, as the Diana effect. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. (laughs) It's the same thing. It's this idea that the trade-off for physical violence for women is that you either have to be completely sexy for my viewing benefit as a man. Which means heterosexual male gaze, too. Which means heterosexual male gaze. 
or you have to be completely unattractive to me in any way. Right, exactly. Because if you're sexy, but you're not sexy the way I want you to be sexy, and you have physical violence, that then becomes a threat. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Then we don't like that character. Then we don't like the character, right. And then there's the other aspect of that, which is that a woman has to be sexy for a heterosexual male gaze in order to be worth looking at at all. Right. This is the problem with Rose in the new Star Wars. This is, yes. And there was... I mean, I don't mean to be mean to Kelly Tran, but she's not conventionally attractive and she's not sexually available in the film for us as the viewing audience. Exactly. And she's okay with having the power that she has, so we don't like her. And you can see that with the backlash of the Star Wars fanboys from that movie in particular. That was one of the main things. Yeah, that's a good example. I'm trying to think about other examples of the Wonder Woman besides Wonder Woman. And that's a really good one to think about, yeah. Okay, great. Buffy the Vampire Slayer falls into this category. In many ways, Daenerys Targaryen falls into this category. Oh yeah, sure, she does. And for me, a lot of times the marker is whether or not that character has to get naked. This is precisely the argument that I have been making about Arya Stark, about Maisie Williams. When she was a kid, she looked like a little boy, and so that part was fine. She could then enact violence, but once she got older and got more physically attractive, she had to get naked in order to offset the amount of violence she is allowed to do. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah. Or also how she's costumed, too, though. How she's costumed, how the ca- how the camera, if we're talking cinema, which we are, how the camera looks at her, how the camera leads our eye, in other words. Well, yeah, I mean, Scarlett Johansson's built her career so far on this. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, exactly. She trades the fact that she is very physically attractive for then getting to spend the movie punching people in the face. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the second one. Let's pause here. We'll come back in two and two and we'll keep moving. Did you know that the Deconstruction Workers podcast has a Patreon page? Well, we do. We have a Patreon page. It is www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW. You can donate as little as $1 a month towards keeping the lights on, and we would really appreciate your support. So click on over to www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW and pledge your support if you enjoy what you're hearing. Now, back to the show. And we're back. So we're discussing these toxic female tropes in film. We've done the first two. Let's move on to number three, which you refer to as down the rabbit hole. Yes, down the rabbit hole. Go ahead and and lay it out and then we'll talk about it. Okay. Well, the the main example, I always use some example from pop culture just because it's easy because lots of people have, have that reference. I mainly use River Tam as the main example of this, but there's lots of it. River Tam from Firefly and Serenity. Yeah, I named it after Alice in Wonderland, obviously, down the rabbit hole. It's this idea that watching especially young women or girls get tortured is a titillating thing. So it's this voyeur aspect of, like I say in the article, hey, it's fun and quite titillating to watch women get tortured, right? Especially if they're childlike geniuses or diminutive teenage warriors. So we have this thing where, in this case... There's other trope called Born Sexy Yesterday. You've probably heard that one. That tends to fall into this character a lot because in this case, the badassness of this character is completely in contrast with her appearance. Usually uh, down the rabbit hole character is either she can't quite be a child because even though, you know, as we see with the Me Too movement, this is actually true that young girls do get sexually violated sexual violence against them all the time we can't quite portray that 
because we can't quite admit that. So they need to be, they need to be a teenager. So like River Tam, she's 17. So she's a woman, but she's very thin. She's very girlish. And, or it's a, it's a character who's literally just cloned. She's literally created the other day, though she has a woman's skinny body. So if you're an eighties kid, think Kelly LeBrock in John Hughes's weird science. Or in the case of Lilu, she is a child. She just right. got created, but she has to have a woman's body because we can't quite go there. So she's very diminutive. So it's a, it's a really odd What happens is a really odd contrast. Like you have someone like Buffy, the vampire slayer, physically kicking ass. Or like Lilu, like you said, slaughtering this entire room full of aliens. Or River Tam with her, the big sword that you see in that famous picture of her from Serenity. That she actually probably couldn't lift with the arms that she has. She has unusual mental powers and then unusual physical powers. And then there's this enjoyment that the audience gaze is made to have this sort of powerful feeling of watching her suffer. It's almost like she's being punished for being that powerful. I mean, it does diverge a little bit from the Born Sexy Yesterday trope in that aspect, right? Right. I mean, because we can think of Born Sexy Yesterday characters forever. Seven of nine. Sure, sure. On Star Trek is one. Even longtime listeners will understand my absolute love affair with the film Demolition Man. Oh, okay. But but Sandra Bullock in Demolition Man is basically a Born Sexy Yesterday character. Mm -hmm. She's got all this knowledge but she really acts like an uninformed child well, she's naive most yeah. of that film. and so the male yeah. hero in their story they're absolutely dependent on the male hero they're absolutely useless without the male hero this is an additional layer on top of that which is the torture aspect of yes it, mm-hmm. which brings me back to the absolute monstrosity that is the film sucker punch right sucker punch is an, a perfect example of down the rabbit hole for sure yeah it's this titillation we're supposed to feel we're supposed to be turned on almost by watching the female get tortured. And right. I was talking about this too. And I give the, there's a male counterpart to this where the, the lens is not a sexual sort of titillation. The lens is completely different when we watch a male character go through torture. I have two examples. One, one example is James Bond going through the, the sort of torturous booby traps when he's escaping from Dr. No's stronghold. Right, And we watch him go, he, has, he gets his hands burned, he has to wrap his shirt around his hands, and so all those things that they go, or like like when you watch John McClane go through. I was just about to say, that's John McClane. Yeah, exactly. Right? So, But we don't get sexually titillated. We're, we don't have this power, it's not the power of watching them get tortured that's titillating. It's not, there's no titillation. When we watch those men go through that torture, we go, oh, wow, how resourceful, or ooh, how strong, what resilience. Or in the case of Wesley in The Princess Bride, right? Sure. We feel what a tragic loss that what we're, we agonize with him exactly. in his torture. Yes, exactly. We, we're, we're supposed to be, to be him when we're watching a male character go through it. When watching a female character go through it, on the one hand, she is normally, this, this type of problematic trope character, is infantilized to begin with. Right. And we're not supposed to be her. We're not supposed to feel River Tam's torture. We're supposed to be watching it. It's almost like we're one of those scientists that are torturing her. That, that's the position we're being put in. Right. Imagine what, what if they had cast me as River Tam instead of Summer Glau. Right. What if it were a, a very tall, broad-beamed, fully mature woman instead of a 
skinny, childlike teenage girl. It goes hand in hand, though, with this thing that it's a trope that I've used for a long time and then realized I sort of usurped a term that actually exists. Oh. <laughs> which is all of these girls know what I used to call waifu. Waifu. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I've since learned waifu is an actual <laughs> other term. Waifu, I love waifu. It's like an anime term. Oh, but waifu so is like kung fu for waifs. It's yeah. like kung fu for 98 pounds. It started really in my head with Sarah Michelle Gellar. Sure. Mm-hmm. Who I love, but who is tiny. Yeah. Sarah Michelle Gellar could fit in your pocket. There's no way she is beating the crap out of adult men on a regular basis. Nope. Now, she has a pass because she has superpowers. Right. Uh, Which is the same pass that I give Kristen Ritter, for example, in Jessica Jones. Right. We understand she's a superhero and has superpowers. Right. There's some sort of magic that allows them to be able to do that. Although I would argue that that's also a problem. As a stunt fighter myself, as a fight choreographer and a performer, it's frustrating for me because as I'm trying to be a real badass woman in real life, we're getting shown this over and over and over as young women and as girls growing up into women. It's like, oh, I'm not supposed to have curves now. I'm not supposed to get tall. I'm not supposed to have hips. But then you look at the behind the scenes, the, the big fight scene in Serenity, the movie, and you look at Summer Glau's stunt woman, the one who actually does the fights. Now, Summer Glau mm-hmm. is a dancer, so she has movement skills. But you look at the woman actually doing the fights and look at how much more muscle that woman has, right. the woman who's actually doing the fights. And yeah, we're supposed to look at summer glow as river tam and go oh no that's the badass so she can be stick thin she can have the build of a matchstick and she's still kicking the butt of the entire room full of reavers and it just doesn't make any sense it's it's actually really super damaging because if girls like me who are skinny as a kid and then grow into an actual real woman (laughs) see that and they start to hate their bodies even more when they see stuff like that it's like oh i should be able to stay tiny and still be able to do that. This also carries over into, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know how much I talk about professional wrestling. Yes. With women who are wrestlers, the suspension of disbelief becomes problematic. Currently, for example, you've got someone like Charlotte Flair, Uh Ashley Fleer. Ashley Fleer is the daughter of the nature boy, Ric Flair, who is one of the best wrestlers of all time. She is 5'11". She's about 185 pounds. Right. She is a solid woman. Right. As she would have to be to be able to do the physical work that she is. She regularly competes against people like Alexa Bliss. Mm-hmm. Alexa Bliss is literally five feet tall. It's part of her gimmick is she's five feet of fury. She's literally five <laughs> feet tall. She's maybe 130 pounds at the most right. on a good day. And I'm supposed to believe that they're in a competitive fight. Right. No, what would happen is Ashley would kick you in the face once and you would die. Right, exactly. And that would be the end of the fight. <laughs> Your neck would be broken and then <laughs> that would be it. Right, right. Like exactly. there's this suspense, and, and that's not to take anything away from Alexa because she is a fantastic in-ring performer, but the matchup is not there. We have weight classes in wrestling for a reason. The matchup is not fair. Yeah, like in boxing, you don't have, you would not have anyone that size against anyone that size. It just wouldn't happen in boxing, but because it's a theatrical art form, they do that for effect. And you can do that with comedic effect too. I mean, you can have the little tiny woman throwing the big woman across the ring and that's, it's funny, but yeah, but it's not framed that way within the context. Exactly. It has to be portrayed that way. Otherwise what we 
keep seeing. And there's all kinds of, I mean, I could go off for another five hours about women and their body issues throughout media of all kinds. So then there's that. If it's not portrayed as, isn't this silly? This could never happen. And we get that with all these other images that we get. I mean, supermodels are still stick thin. It's starting to get a little bit better. There's a lot of discussion about it. There's some talk. There's some more campaigns like the Dove campaigns and things like that. But, you know, we're still going to pick up a magazine or look at a billboard or look at a lingerie model and they're going to have a thigh gap. It's just, it's still unrealistic. And so then to then make that stick thin woman into a physical badass is a problem. And then having this sort of torture porn is also a problem when, especially when the male counterparts don't get the torture porn part of it. Totally agree. All right. So that's number three. Let's move on to number four. Four. Number four is the meaning of his life. And this one is really irritating. Yes, it is. <laughs> really, really irritating. I wrote this article and my main example was Padme Amidala. And it was funny, yes. my, my editor in the margins when she was helping me with my revisions, I had this part in the middle of the article where I describe how awesome Padme is and all of her strength and her intelligence and her political prowess and her ability to to stay in the fights with the Jedi, and she's right there, and she's she's got everything going for her. She's kind of amazing. So she's the protagonist, right? Nope. The only purpose she has in that entire prequel trilogy is to be the love interest of Anakin. Now, the only reason she's so strong, intelligent, smart, politically awesome, badass, is so that we see with Anakin, whoa, we see exactly why he would fall in love with her. So my part in the middle of the article was... We see exactly why Anakin would fall in love with her. Jeez, she's incredible in every way. But why on earth would she fall in love with Anakin? She wouldn't. She would not. Is the, is the answer. She wouldn't. And then my editor in the margin was like, thank you. Oh, my God. She was just so excited. But anyway, so, yeah, that's the whole point is that, no, if you're actually writing a story with these characters and you're thinking about how these characters would actually react, there is no way in hell that she was going to fall in love with Anakin. No, I'm sorry, no. Anakin being a Jedi does not make him cool. In fact, in the case of the prequels, kind of actually not at all. <laughs> so why, but why does she fall in love with him? Because she does. Well, because that's her only purpose. I would argue she's only a badass so that she lives long enough for him to fall in love with her. That, that's a good point, too. Within the context of the story. She's a badass, not as a good character, but as a color. She's painted this bright color of badassery. So we go, ooh, pretty. Ooh, neat. It's her plot armor. It's her plot armor. <laughs> it's the way to keep her alive long enough to fulfill her role. I love plot armor. Yes, that's absolutely true. Yeah. And in that big fight scene in the arena, oh, the monster scratches her across them. Oh, now she has a perfectly ripped midriff outfit. Wow. Exactly. With these beautiful Bruce Lee claw marks across her back. Oh, man. Well. We have to push her out of a moving skiff and she can't die. No, she won't die. Until she gets pregnant. Which is its own whole other gross thing. So she gets pregnant. She has, what, three lines? Five lines? Once she's pregnant, she's completely out of the stories. She has, no she has nothing to do. The only couple of lines she has is, You're breaking my heart, Anakin! Like, she just turns into this completely non-badass. It's very Marian effect, actually, but... This is the whole thing about this. She, from the beginning, her whole purpose was the meaning of his life. And then going backwards 
two episodes to the discussion on canon uh-huh. completely destroys canon by dying during childbirth. Oh my god! Thank you. So that when Leia, so that when that. Leia goes to Luke and uh, says, "What do you remember about your mother?" I remember mine used much. to sing to me. I'm like, "No, you didn't. No, you, you remember don't. nothing. You remember not one single thing because no. she died she the died second you were born in childbirth." I know that's dr- okay. So I was ten. Year- oh, this is going to be a small tangent. I'm really sorry. I'm going to go on. I was ten when Return of the Jedi came out. So that's as a Star Wars nerd, that's kind of my. There's a very special, large place in my heart for for Return of the Jedi. I went into the theater because I and I was poor growing up in Boulder. I was not not moneyed, and I went and I walked to the movie theater. I saw it seven times in the theater by myself at age ten. So this is a big thing. I have the whole thing memorized. And Leia does say it. She goes, not much. I remember she was very beautiful, proud, but sad, or something like that, right? Yeah. It drives me nuts. Anyway, so Star Wars yeah. nerd rage, Star Wars nerd rage tangent, and we're back. <laughs> this is the problem with both the novel and the amplified problem with the film version of one of my favorite stories, which is Ready Player One. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Ready Player One does the exact same thing. Artemis only exists to be Percival's love interest. Even though we see she is capable, she is good at being in the game, she knows what she's doing, she solves many problems Mm -hmm. on her own without his help, ultimately at the end, her job is to be in love with him. Right, that's her only purpose. And does she then go away when her purpose is fulfilled? Well, no, she does not. They end up together because she's the MacGuffin. Right, okay. We think that winning the game and getting control of the company is the MacGuffin, but it's not. Artemis is really the MacGuffin. Ah, right. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Right. And then Padme literally dies once she has the twins. Right. That's it. She has no more purpose at all. Her occupation's gone. This is also closely related to, I want to say maybe we've talked about it on the show in the past, but now I don't know that we have, which is fridging. Fridging, yeah. So for listeners who don't know what fridging is, fridging comes from Green Lantern, the comic book Green Lantern, in which there's an issue where Green Lantern's girlfriend is murdered and stuffed in a refrigerator to be the catalyst for him fighting the bad guy and winning. Yes. Anytime a love interest character serves their purpose by dying so that the hero will do the thing, we call that fridging. Yes, and then especially if then their death is the, like you said, it's the catalyst for everything that the male hero then does. Padme gets fridged. Yep, yeah, basically. Yeah, she gets fridged. So that Anakin will become Darth Vader. We had jokes in the last podcast I talked about these with that in John Wick, the dog is the fridge. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the dog, the is dog fridge. gets fridged. Right? <laughs> but yeah, it's the same idea. It's it's the only purpose of the female character is to be the purpose for the male character. In your piece, you talk about Arwen in Lord of the Rings, who serves the same purpose. Yeah, it's a sort of a, it's a subtrope. It's the Arwen syndrome, which is she's not present, and especially in the books. I mean, she's just nowhere. But when they amplified her in the movies, you can kind of see even more. I admire what they tried to do. It's, I would have done the same thing. I would have made most of the one-off male elf characters just make them into Arwen. That totally makes sense. But you could see even more how it comes from medieval tradition. It's the lady love that you sort of distantly love. She's your inspiration and your muse and your catalyst for doing all of your nightly quests and things like that. But she's never actually in your house. She's never in your bed. She's never actually in your life. She's not a person. She is a beautiful thing on a pedestal that inspires you. All right. All right. So then number... What are we on? Number five. five. 
Number five is Mother Knows Best. And I think I could probably tackle the breakdown on this one, which is you're cool as a character and everything's fine, but really you're not fulfilled until you're a mom. Yep. Yeah. Domestication is your only destiny. It doesn't matter how strong you are. Really, your place is in the home with the children. Yes. Easy. Um, (laughs) Easy, easy. This this one's, I was going to say, this one's super easy. And moving Um, on. No. (laughs) Just one thing before we do move on. I did have a couple people arguing that, well, you know, because I use Ripley as an example in Aliens. mm -hmm. And they're like, yeah, but the only reason she gets so attached to Newt is because she learns that she basically lost her own daughter, her own daughter would have been about the same age when she got frozen and I'm like yeah but that doesn't change the fact that it's still that trope now of course we can talk about like in that movie obviously other things happen down the line for her but lots of death has to happen I talk about Hunger Games too where that's the only conclusion you're allowed you have to have a nice home and a garden and you picked a gentle husband and now you have babies and that's the only way you're allowed to conclude your life because it's the only way that you're redeemed as a especially bloody action type female character both hermione granger and jenny weasley sure end up in this trope yep yep that's your that has been your purpose all along cool that you were so awesome good for you for heading the revolution (laughs) but now you're gonna marry ron and have some kids exactly exactly same thing with katniss good job you're not gonna be a political activist anymore because now you're done so have the babies Okay, so yeah, that one's easy and annoying, and we can just <laughs> we could be up. we could be irked and move right on. Okay. Okay, so number six is interesting because it's the one of all of your seven. It's the one that I think people find the least problematic. It's the one that we attribute the most to. No, this is actually a positive character. Yes. Mm-hmm. And this is the just one of the guys trope. Yes, one of the guys. I think it is one of the least problematic, but it has to do a lot with that second flip of the coin from number two, from the Wonder Woman. And it's this whole thing about, well, the female character, the more badass she is, the less female she is allowed to be. I talked about these tropes at Comic-Con this past year. And one of the comments, which is totally true, is that a lot of the time, the one of the guy's trope characters are either from a time period in history or from a fantasy world based on a time period in history or culture where women were not allowed to be warriors. They were not allowed to join the army. They were not allowed to be whatever warrior class that they happened to have, or or they were so rare that it just really didn't happen very often. So they perforce had to disguise themselves as men just in order to be able to be a warrior. And that's totally valid. And that's legit. So that's part of that problematic trope that isn't maybe problematic. Like Mulan, for example, that just takes place in a culture and a time period that she has to dress up as a man in order to do the thing. Right. For me, though, like you said, that way that that portrayal happens isn't as problematic. It's not as, yeah. As the other way that it happens, which is, and there's, uh, even with this other conception, there's two ways it comes down as well, which is in our culture, in American culture specifically, if you are a woman who has access to behaviors and language typically deployed by men in a way that men find familiar, and then you happen to also be attractive, physically attractive, you're the apex of American woman. If you are really hot 
and know stuff about football, dudes want you. In our pop culture, though, you can't actually have that. The stronger you are, the less you're able to be female. Like, I'm just thinking about not just the women who have to disguise themselves because of historical context, but I'm thinking Vasquez from Aliens, for example. Well, sure, but Vasquez from Aliens is rendered asexual at best because she's a Marine. That's not the trope I'm talking about, although that does fit in here as well. I'm talking about Michelle Rodriguez in every movie she's ever been in. (laughs) Right, that's true. Yeah. That's the tr- that's the trope I'm talking about. Right, right. Where she's kind of like a dude, but she's also really attractive. Yeah. And so she's one of the guys, and that's part of her sexiness. Sure. That's the thing I'm talking about. Yeah. And I, I would like to delve more into trope numbers. I think I'd write, like to write. I've been told this needs to be a book instead of a series of articles. Oh, you can find the articles on Writers HQ, by the way, <laughs> if you want to read more. I'll put the link in the show notes. Sweet. But when this, and if this does become a book, I do want to delve more into this trope number six, because this is this is where we can start talking more about gender presentation and what does it mean to, like you're talking about. So being femininely sexy to the guys is something, but then being also guy-like in a lot of ways is another thing. And then how does pop culture portray a warrior woman what this trope basically says is a woman can't actually be a badass because she the more badass she is the more of a man she has to become but then to bring in more real life kind of situations and to to talk about those and then to talk about gender fluidity as well would be really interesting it's true but it's not always true right exactly exactly and there's a lot of societal misogyny from history that we're talking about as well, which is this, it it just makes it more complicated. There's a point at which the quote unquote male attributes that you acquire as a woman begin to push past this point of intimidation and then into actually, no, I find that really attractive. Right, exactly, yeah. Mostly because I think most men, and this is a generalization, it's certainly not true for me, but most men prefer the company of other men Mm-hmm. In terms of homosociality, not homosexuality. Sociality, yeah. Mm-hmm. Most of my closest friends in my life are women, but for most men, most men like to hang out with other men. So if you're a woman who I find really attractive and I can hang out with you like I would hang out with other men, you become the prize. You're the Michelle Rodriguez. This is the same trope in those of you right. who are my wrestling fans out there. This is how Becky Lynch is making all her money right now. By looking like yeah. Becky Lynch, but acting like uh, Seth right. Rollins. Mm-hmm. That's how she's building her fan base right now. Right. So right. if exactly. you're exactly. there's a point at which it becomes the more attractive quality to be just one of the guys. Yeah, and I'd be interested to trace what is that point then? And where, where does that show up in pop culture? Or does it? Well, clearly it does. I mean, I, I just don't know where it turns that corner. That, that'd be really interesting. I'd like to write more about that. Yeah, that one's an interesting one. Cool. Which then brings us to our last one, which is, I'm only here for my vagina, and this one is <laughs> very easily understood. Right. I use Pussy Galore as the main example, and there's a subtrope of this one, which is, oops, I'm not gay after all. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I, th- I think we could probably catch the first one pretty easily, so maybe talk about that second Okay. One. So, well, the first one is that, that a woman's only superpower is her sex so, and she's right. there only for sex. Once the male hero achieves sex with her, then her occupation's gone and she goes away. Just like right. a lot of James Bond girls, that kind of thing. That's her primary purpose or her only purpose. Goes back to what I was saying about locus of power. Locus of power, exactly. So the subtrope of this one is, oops, I'm not gay after all. And this happens... And one of the more famous characters this happens with is Pussy Galore from Goldfinger. Oh, James Bond and its history of 
just tragically problematic stuff. Right. Now, in the book, it's very explicitly put. It's implicit in the movie, but in the book, it is explicit that Pussy Galore is a lesbian. Her entire group of female pilots are all lesbians. It's very, it's put forth very clearly, very succinctly, and very explicitly. It's not hinted at, it is there. But the moment that Bond forces her, basically, I mean, it's, it is a lot like that scene in the movie where it's the sort of kiss her till she likes it kind of James Bond thing. Right. The moment that Bond forces him, himself upon her, she is suddenly like, oh, well, I was just waiting for the right man to come along, which is this horrible, problematic thing. She actually says at the end of the book, she has this monologue about, oh, I chose to be a lesbian because I was abused by my father. And, and so people are like, oh, but yeah, that's a really old fashioned misogynist thing i'm like well yeah how about sherlock how about the irene adler that they portrayed in the 2014 bbc sherlock she's like i'm a dominatrix i am also gay and she says it out loud so she's not only a powerful sexual being in fact in fact she has a dominating sexual power being a dominatrix she's the one who dominates which is usually that that's the man's job is to be the dominator and i talk about this with my next series of tropes which is my masculine tropes so she's not she's a dominating sexual powerful being and says she's gay but at the end spoiler alert guys from several years ago at the end she's revealed to be not only to be in love with sherlock holmes but also needs to then be saved by him. She becomes a damsel in distress once that reveal has taken place. So not only has her entire sexual power been completely pulled the rug from under it, she, what, what, you're not gay? Like, you just said you were gay. <laughs> Suddenly you're not. And also her, all of her other power, her political power, her conniving, she's a very conniving con artist sort of person, all of that power is taken away from her too. The moment she admits that she's in love with Sherlock Holmes. So her sexuality is taken away from her, which is also her, in that particular character's case, her power. And so it's like, oh, well, you're gay, but no, you're not though, because the hero is special. The male hero is the only one who can conquer you. And it is, it is a conquering. Because if you stayed lesbian, then you're not having sex with the male hero. And so you're therefore not going to want to watch you. This one is... This one is such a problem in so many ways. And it still happens. It still happens. And I I do think there is this underlying belief system in our culture, not that all lesbians secretly are heterosexual. I don't think that's the trope or that all lesbians just need to find the right guy. It's that if you are really physically attractive, you cannot possibly be a quote-unquote real lesbian. Like somehow real lesbians are only the ones who couldn't get a man. If you're attractive enough to be able to get a man, you're not actually really a lesbian. It's just a phase. That's the actual trope. There's that too, yeah. And there's the whole problem that, I don't know if you and I probably grew up with the, the sort of 80s rom-com thing with the, they hate each other until they fall in love. Exactly. They, really, they've they fallen in love all the time. They were in love all the time. That's the basis of so many romantic comedies. 
or it's boy, go after the girl. If she says no, you just didn't ask correctly. Right. Or she's just playing hard to get. She really means yes, keep trying. And if you don't if you don't get the girl in the end, you just are not a man enough. You have not tried hard enough. Although I think that's a slightly different trip. Like that it's it, it's in the same tree, but that's uh, that's not quite what I'm talking about. It, it's in the same family. It's in the same it's family. Like, well, exactly. You know. Sure, you're a lesbian, but but you're really physically attractive, which means you're really heterosexual. Because I'm a guy and I find you sexually attractive, you have to be heterosexual. You just have to. You have to be. Yes, exactly. And then there's the other there's the other aspect of that too, which is the whole bisexuality, a bisexual woman as a reward. The quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes, cute little moment at the end of Dodgeball. The whole running joke has been, she's a lesbian, she's a lesbian, she's a lesbian. And at the end, and this is kind of a little romance starting between the male hero and her. But at the end, her, like, it seems like an old girlfriend comes out of the audience and is like, oh, it's you. Oh, and oh, I'm so glad to see you. And then they kiss. And then the whole joke punchline is there. Oh, see, she is a lesbian. Oh, gosh, yeah, huh. Guess I was wrong. Then she goes, she turns away from kissing this woman who obviously she knows from a long time ago, turns to the men, says, I'm not a lesbian, I'm bisexual, grabs the male hero, kisses him too. Right. So it's like, oh, you were persistent long enough, and you're the male hero, so now you get to watch me kiss my hot girlfriend as a reward for your, you know, heroic prowess. So that's part of the, oops, I'm not gay after all, it's the whole of course you can watch me with my girlfriend because that's your reward for being persistent. <laughs> you can watch me in performative sexuality. Yes, exactly. It's not real. Right. It's not real lesbianism or real bisexuality. It's it's only it's here for you. I'm only here for my vagina. <laughs> the number of times I have heard people, not just in popular culture, but in my actual life, who've seen people who are clearly not straight, two women together girlfriends Mm -hmm. who said something like, but that one is too cute. Or that one is this idea that she's still sexually available, even when clearly she is with another woman. Oh, I've heard, I've heard what a waste. What a waste. Exactly. (laughs) I have a friend named Kim and Kim and I have talked about this several times that when men find out that she is lesbian, they're mad. Not because, Uh uh-huh of her sexual orientation, not because, but because that means she doesn't want them. Yeah. She's off the table. She's not on the menu. That makes them angry. (laughs) Not that for some reason she has rejected them, but that they don't have any chance at all. Right. Right. That they're not even an option. That's the part that's, that's frustrating. Mm -hmm. That's the wasteful part. And so in pop culture, that's where we come into the oops, I'm not gay after all. It's this, I'm strong, independent. I'm sexually powerful and I'm into women. And Oh, actually but I'm also into you, oh male hero. That's how special you are. Especially when it's framed as though it's just that guy specifically. Like she yes, wouldn't be into right. any other guy, but because of his very special qualities, she's into him specifically. So these are seven very problematic tropes in popular <laughs> culture. Seven ways in which femininity is presented in ways that are wrong and irritating and problematic. In characters that are presented as otherwise strong or tough or awesome in some way. So at the end of the day, these problem tropes, so what? Oh, yes. I've been binging your podcast. I forgot. You always ask, so what? Before I answer the question, so what, I want to preamble it by saying I didn't come up with these seven tropes. 
I didn't coin them in order to make all of you hate the things that you like. So please keep loving Wonder Woman. Please keep loving these franchises and stories and everything else. Unless you love Sucker Punch, in which case don't do that. <laughs> exactly. Other than that, <laughs> unless what you love is hot garbage. My, my point in coining them and in, and in pointing them out and in analyzing them, which is what we academics do, right? We look at literature or we look at media of all kinds and we analyze it and we talk about it. So I just wanted to point these out so that we're not being spoon fed these strong female characters. Cause like I said, in the beginning, especially with the badass characters, it tends to be pretty insidious. It tends to be really subtle. And sometimes it's hard to notice the problems, but the problems are underlying and they're there in the structural misogyny of our society, which is what culture reflects, right? So problematic badass female tropes. So what? Just see them. See them for what they are. Notice them. Don't just sit back in your movie theater chair and be spoon-fed it the way you're feeding yourself the popcorn. You don't have to stop loving it. Just notice notice these things when they pop up. Notice them. Take note. And maybe ask for these characters to be written better in the future. At least you're actively consuming your entertainment and your arts. And you're able to see these things for what they are. That's just a great first step. Yeah, I would agree. I think much like a lot of the things we do on this show, the so what is pay attention. Yeah, yeah, pay attention. Pay attention. I mean, the... Yes, it's easy to be a passive consumer in this culture because it's what you're conditioned to do. But... It really does have real-world consequences for the way that we treat people. And part of my you know, research agenda here in terms of looking at ways in which women and girls get portrayed in media is so that maybe men have a different idea of what it means to be a girl or means to be a woman sure. and then perpetrate less violence on them. That's yes, my that's exactly. my ultimate goal, you know, is to reduce the amount of violence that gets perpetrated against women and girls because of the way they are portrayed in popular culture and all of these tropes in some way contribute to that. And as as girls growing into women and as women trying to navigate our being a badass in real life, also how we treat ourselves too. Well said. Well, friends, that's it for us for this week. For Jen Zuko, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. Thanks for hanging in on the Deconstruction Workers. Thank you, Jen, for your first appearance. I hope this was uh, a good experience for you, and hopefully we'll have you back. That was great. I want to come back and talk about wrestling with you. Oh, yeah. Let's definitely do any any excuse to talk about wrestling. You guys know that. (laughs) All right. So uh, thanks, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Even better, become a sponsor of the show at patreon.com slash podcastdcw. Check out thedeconstructionworkers.com or follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for the Deconstruction Workers podcast was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and academic public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is copyright 2019, all rights reserved.